The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. There's a very nice little quote I got from an interview with somebody who knew him. was very surprised when she went the first time to his house in Hampstead and how comfortable and bourgeois it was. And so she asked him, you know, how do you square this? He said, well, if you're going down with the ship, you might as well go down first class. That was Richard J. Evans talking about the life of the historian Eric Cobbsborn. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Eric Hobsbawm the 20th century historian whose books became global bestsellers and continue to inform students today. Hobsbawm was perhaps equally well known for his strong Marxist beliefs, which shaped and were shaped by his own fascinating life story that took him from the rise of the Nazis in Germany to the post-war Soho jazz scene and beyond. Professor Richard J. Evans has just completed the first biography of Hobsbawm and I met up with him in London recently to explore the life and work of one of the most important and also maybe most controversial, historians of recent times. The book is called A Life in History, and I'd be interested to know how far do you think his own life shaped the history he produced? Um, well, he, of course, in his autobiography, says that his life was shaped by the historical events through which he lived and the sort of larger forces uh, of those times. But he also said that he was an intuitive historian. He didn't plan what he wrote. And one of the central arguments of my biography is that there's a kind of dovetailing of Eric's personal life and the subjects he wrote about. So uh, his own particular situation also influenced his historical writing. And one very good example of that was uh, in the 1940s when he was a very committed uh, communist in in many ways. He wrote about uh, the rise of organised labour, the rise of the working class and wage labour, the Industrial Revolution, which carried on until the early to mid-1950s. But... Um, in the 19, mid-1950s, he broke with the Communist Party uh, in, in Britain uh, and he started to move not in communist circles but in the kind of bohemian world of Soho and he got interested in writing about deviant and marginal people in history not about the rise of the wage worker, but about millenarians, about bandits, about what he called primitive rebels. Um, So there is a kind of dovetailing there, really, which I found really fascinating. So as you already alluded, his communism is a huge part of who he was and his history. 
Where, where does that begin for him? Is that all from his time in Germany when the, the Nazis were on the rise? Fundamentally, yes. So he was born in 1917, uh, coincidentally, of course, but it's nevertheless, it's the uh, year of the Russian Revolution. And he grew up in Vienna, but his parents died uh, when he was quite young, when he was respectively 12 and 14. And so he was looked after by an uncle and aunt who became his guardians in Berlin. And he was there in the early 1930s. And that's a time, of course, when the Weimar Republic's falling apart. And I've talked to quite a few other people who lived through that period as, as uh, adolescents and young, young people. Uh, the choice in the uh, high schools, the grammar schools in Germany, particularly in Berlin, was really between Nazism and communism. It's a, a time not unlike our own, but much more extreme, when the centre, as it were, fell apart. And Eric couldn't possibly become a Nazi. For one thing, he was a British citizen. He was known as the English boy in the school. And for another, he was Jewish. And, of course, the Nazis were extreme anti-Semites. So he gravitated towards the Communist Party. He was already His parents were liberal, secular Jews, um, he'd already experienced uh, in, in Vienna uh, a beginnings of a polarization of politics between left and right and sympathized with the left. And he became a communist in Berlin. Um, he didn't actually join the party. He didn't join the party until he was in Cambridge in 1936. But he became intellectually and ideologically a Marxist. Um, uh, I always call him a communist of the small c because neither in Berlin nor in London, where the family, his uncle and aunt and his sister and, and their child and, and Eric all left just as the Nazis are seizing power, largely because his uncle's business failed. It was somewhat coincidental that that's when the Nazis were coming to power in March 1933. They left for London. And uh, it's, uh, it's in London that he really read himself into the Marxist classics. Um, but he didn't join the Communist Party because in Berlin, the Communist Party was in major force. In Germany in the early 30s, uh, it had 100 deputies in the Reichstag, the national parliament. It could put 100,000 people onto the streets in a demonstration at a moment's notice. And in fact, he took part in the last great communist demonstration in Berlin before the Nazi seizure of power early in 1933. And he got to England and there wasn't a single communist MP. Um, the Communist Party was a tiny sect, of very little importance. And he just thought it was rather pathetic. And of course, he had to, he had to concentrate on his studies. I mean, he, he was brought up bilingually. His mother was a translator. Uh, from English into German, and his school reports show that he, he was registered as bilingual English and German, but he still had to cope with a completely different educational system, a new school, and he focused very much on his uh, exams and then getting into Cambridge. Um, so political activities took very much a back seat, but if there was any, it was for the Labour Party. So he did some canvassing for the Labour Party in the mid-30s, uh, and again, that stuck in 1945. He thought it was the only serious po uh, political force on the left, despite his ideological commitment to, to communism. He never did any of the things that communists are supposed to do, only write for communist journals, sell the daily worker on the street corner, um, all of those kinds of things. So he was not a very good communist in, in, in the party sense, but ideologically he was very much a, a Marxist, a Marxist-Leninist, we can say. Despite this this passion for communism and for politics, why did he then decide not to pursue that as a career but to become a historian? 
Well, he he again he says in his memoirs that that he felt he was going to be a historian from very early on, um, but I think that's got a reading back into his past. Something that was much less certain. So he certainly proved to be very good at history at school, and he read history at Cambridge from 1936 to 39. And he came to history from Marxism. Um, in Cambridge, he encountered through the economic history professor Munia Poston, who is um, a continental European origin, knew and prized the Annal School of French social and economic historians. He was introduced to all of that. And that was, as I think, as much of an influence on his thinking about history as as Marxism was. Uh, and he got married during the war. He, he spent the war in, in Britain. He was by that time under MI5 surveillance and they wouldn't let him out of the country. I thought they'd rather keep him at home where they could keep eyes on him. But he got married uh, and he felt he had to earn a living. Uh, he got a double star first at Cambridge, so a star first, top first in both parts of the historical tripos, the examination system. Um, and that entitled you in those days to, automatically to a PhD studentship, which he had at King's College. But he also became a lecturer at... Birkbeck in London, 1947. His wife worked uh, as a civil servant, a fairly senior civil servant, but he, he certainly needed, needed the money. The two of them needed the money, so he got this job as a history lecturer. He, he previously thought of becoming a poet, but um, I read some of his poems from the war, and they are truly terrible. I, I actually sent them to a colleague who uh, was a professor of German poetry, and she wrote back and said it's a good job he became a historian. Uh, he was really a, a brilliant prose writer, but he couldn't manage the kind of concentration style you need for poetry and uh, he thought he might be a broadcaster he applied to the BBC for a full-time job but they turned him down he even considered working for the Daily Mail but in the end thought better of it though he canvassed a lot of kind of different things including working as a propagandist for the communists but I think in the end he was unwilling to give up his independence of mind and so he, he plumped for history because he knew he was good at it and he found it fascinating in many 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 ways but that decision only came really at the end of the Second World War. Now, you mentioned in your last answer that MI5 had him on their radar. What was it about him that they deemed to be dangerous? And, and was that a realistic view of theirs? Well, the, the two things that drew him to their attention. One was he was corresponding with uh, some German exiled communists, an Austrian, Austrian exiled communists, and that MI5 found that out, and so they began to be interested in him. And then after a, a fairly disastrous period in the Royal Engineers, because he was hopelessly impractical, he uh, then got transferred to the Army Educational Corps. And one of his jobs was to put up wall newspapers. It's quite a widespread thing during, during the war to inform the troops. And they were arguing for a second front. And one of Stalin's demands was that the Allies, the British and the, and, and the French and then the Americans, should relieve the pressure on the Soviet armies in the Eastern Front by invading Western Europe. And the, the Allies felt it was too soon. They needed to prepare properly for it. Uh, and Eric's partisanship there was felt to be politically inconvenient because the Allies authorities did not want that kind of... They didn't want popular pressure put on them when they weren't ready. And so he was reported to the to MI5 and they started, started their files on him. I think he sort of suspected that somebody was um, kind of spying on him. 
but he never really found out until a good deal later that it was MI5. I think he thought it was the military authorities. And then after the war, then he became more active in the communist movement. As I say, not in a conventional way, but he did join various, play a role in various friendship organisations, sort of British East German, uh, British Czech, and so on, with communist regimes in East, Eastern Europe to get support from them. Uh, didn't last very long, uh, particularly I think it stopped in the early 50s when they became much more heavily Stalinized than they were before in the, these Eastern European countries. I don't think once they'd started opening his post for a while, um, and of course they had a listening device in the Communist Party headquarters in, in, in London, and so some of his conversations he had there, he very occasionally visited them, and sometimes phone conversations were recorded, monitored, and transcribed. And I don't think that they felt that once they got him on his radar that they should stop. But he was really pretty harmless, I think. He was a communist intellectual, as I say, with a small c. And all the time that they had him under surveillance, uh, of course, uh, until they were exposed, the famous Cambridge spies, who were a slightly older generation than he was, Burgess, Philby, Maclean, Blunt, they were literally getting away with murder. And I think it's because he wasn't quite British sort of thing. He was half Austrian. He spoke with a little bit of an, of, of an accent, not much. He had all these continental um, connections. He wasn't a sort of classic, uh, you know, English public schoolboy from a good background like those other, the real Cambridge spies were. Hugh Trevor who was involved in British intelligence during the war, wrote a devastating indictment on, on the Philby in affair of, of the snobbish attitude of the secret services. You know, if you came with the right background, you could get away with almost anything. So he becomes a historian and he's he's a Marxist historian. What exactly does that entail for a historian? I mean, I, I know what a Marxist is politically, but what does it mean to be a Marxist historian? How does that shape your work? Well, um, he was never just a Marxist historian. He wrote about the rise of the manual labouring industrial class, he wrote about the Industrial Revolution. It gave him a perspective, it gave him the intellectual tools with which to interpret uh, modern history. He wasn't actually, strictly speaking, an economic historian. As he said, he only became an economic historian by, by title, as it were, because that was the one area you could use Marxist concepts and methods linking the economy into society, culture and politics at a time in the 50s when the vast majority of mainstream historians just did political and diplomatic history. Being a Marxist historian meant that you interpreted everything as coming directly or more usually indirectly from the economic base. Uh, so there was a conventional distinction between the base and the superstructure. Of course, it was more complicated than that. They had sort of mutual feedback loops and so on. Um, but uh, if you look at his books, the age of books, they always start with the economy and then they move on to other areas. But it's in moving on to other areas that he... Um, bro he, he broke free of the constraints of Marxism and incorporated the um, methods and the breadth of vision of the Annales School in France. So you'll find a lot of st stuff uh, in his book right from the very beginning, including in his book, The Rise of the Wage Worker, which he was unable to publish because it was turned down for being too Marxist. But even there, he has a wonderful section on working class culture, for example, um, and he also had the f good fortune to be commissioned by George Weidenfeld, another Austrian Jewish exile, a publishing impresario, 
uh, without peer, I think, in the 50s and 60s, to write the Age of Revolution as part of this huge 40-volume history of civilization. And there again, it was a history of civilization. So Weidenfeld wanted him from the start to take an extremely broad view and write about art and music and science and uh, learning and, and many different aspects of culture and society as well as about politics and, and, and the economy. So his books are always very, um, very broad in that sense. But the Marxism comes through in a kind of amalgam with that much broader vision. So when he's writing Primitive Rebels or Bandits about um, these marginal figures, mostly in 19th century and early 20th century Europe, um, figures absolutely on the margin of society, but you can see the sort of sympathy coming through in the way he writes about them at a time when he was living a lot of his time in Soho and mixing with... Uh, people on the margins of society in the, the downbeat club and other jazz venues he used to frequent. Um, but he calls them primitive rebels, and that's because in his Marxist conceptualization of rebellion and resistance, they're primitive because they haven't become part of an organized political movement or the socialist movement or trade unions, in other words. So he has this kind of teleology, you know, that this, the advanced rebels are the ones who are essentially members of the socialist and communist parties. Uh, but he had this fascination with these figures who didn't didn't get there, as it were. It's It's on the face of it, rather a patronizing attitude towards them. But at the same time, you can see he's very sympathetic. Was it really his writings and his books, particularly the Age of series, that sort of took him beyond just being a regular historian, actually made him a real figure of note in the country and in the world? Well, I think um, it's part and parcel of his Marxism, or you might say his Marxism is part and parcel of a wider, broader ability he had to develop uh, new concepts and new methods and to pose challenging big questions uh, and illustrate them and explain them then with a lot of wonderful references, anecdotes, quotations, um, all kinds of wonderful detail. So his influence on the historical profession, particularly on my generation, when we grew up as historians in the late 60s and 70s under the influence of um, Eric Hobsbawm, Mabel Thompson, uh, Rodney Hilter, Christopher Hill, and so on, um, was that he he was able to develop these challenging concepts. So if you think of the uh, uh, idea of the general crisis of the 17th century, which he coined and he developed that in two long articles in the journal that he and others founded as an offshoot of the Communist Party Historians Group, past and present, in the early 50s. And he argued that if you looked right across Europe, from the English Civil Wars to France, Germany, Thirty Years' War and so on, there is a general crisis of the feudal economy and feudal society that causes this, these massive disruptions and, and, and conflicts and brings about change. And that sparked a very long debate which drew in huge numbers of 17th century specialists and is still kind of rumbling on today, or the invention of tradition, uh, again, that's an, that you can see the Marxist influence on that, the idea that tradition uh, is something that is not, uh, it, it doesn't go back to time immemorial, but some traditions are actually invented. What sparked his interest there was, in fact, the service of Nine Lessons and Carols at King's College, Cambridge, which he came across as an undergraduate, seemed traditional, but in fact, it was a very recent creation. We're celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. 
So there were plenty of others. He had this extraordinary ability to conceptualise and to order the, the historian's material. It's the most difficult thing a historian has to do is actually make sense of the inchoate, vast, sprawling mass of, of evidence and facts that we have to deal with. Uh, and um, the long 19th century, for example, 1789 to, uh, to 1914 as a single overarching period. There, there are many other major concepts that he, that he develops. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Now, his books sold, many of them sold very well in Britain, but actually he was often more popular overseas and particularly in the book you highlight quite often how popular he was in, say, Brazil. So I wonder why you think it was that he was actually often more popular away from his home country than he was here in Britain. Yes, I think he um, he did have this British, actually English, really. He had he had an, he had a way he had a way with words. He approached history uh, not just as a, a an intellectual exercise, but also uh, as a way of making the past come alive through literary style. He was a stylist. He was a writer in many ways before he was uh, a historian, and he came to history, not just from Marx's theory, but from literature as well. Um, he kept diaries as an adolescent, as a young man, and he has this truly terrifying weekly chronicle of his reading, which is sort of un unimaginably vast and difficult books by the, by the yard. Uh, and that includes not just, um, not just uh, Marx's classics, so he read all of those when he was a teenager, but also French drama, and he's read French very well, long, lengthy novels in German, translation of War and Peace, and all kinds of literature, poetry. He went through one poet after another when he was a teenager, and that had a huge impact on his style. And that's quite unusual outside the UK. We do have this literary tradition of historical writing here that goes back to Macaulay and Gibbon and so on. And that stood us in very good stead as British historians making an impact and, uh, abroad. And you can think of plenty British historians who've had a huge success outside this country in, in translation. Uh, and he was certainly a, a, a pioneer there, I think, because his books are very readable, but they're also conceptually sophisticated and they make sense of long periods and difficult problems in, in history. That's combination, I think, which is not nearly so common in countries like Germany or, or, or even France, where the social science influence on history is is much more powerful, I think. Um, and then in this country, I think, to a degree, readers tend to be a bit suspicious of concepts and theories. That's much less so in the intellectual culture of, of, of many other countries. With all the success that Hobsbawm gained in his career, he, he lived a comfortable life. He became something of an establishment figure. How did he himself square that with the fact that he was a man of the left and... And does he need to? Does somebody who 
who thinks the left-wing way have to live the lifestyle. He, he went through periods of acute poverty when he was a child. He recalled, for example, how he had to go through the snow in Vienna in the, in the winter in a pair of old shoes that let the, let the water in. And he, had this, uh, he was given this old second-hand bike and he was so ashamed of it when he got to Berlin. He took it to Berlin and he was cycling to school when it's quite a well-off sort of district, a part of Berlin, and the other kids had come along in their Mercedes and so on. And, and he, so he got to school early so he could hide the bike away. Um, I mean, he's very conscious of a sort of economic in, insecurity. His, his, his parents and his uncle and aunt who looked after him in Berlin and, and then in London were essentially unsuccessful. His father was an unsuccessful businessman, so was his uncle. His mother made a bit of money from translating uh, and writing novels indeed, but, but not, not very much. Uh, and that never left him, that sense of economic insecurity. Uh, even even into old age, when he was earning a lot of money from his from his books, I don't think it's a question he asked himself very much. I think he I get the sense he rather avoided saying, "Look, here I am. I'm a Marxist, but I'm making uh, you know thousands of hundreds of thousands of pounds from my my books." I mean, his he did make a. A good deal of, of of money and was very well off. Had a nice house in Hampstead. Was able to afford foreign travel and so on. There's a very nice little quote I got from an interview with someone who knew him, who was very surprised when she went the first time to his house in Hampstead, at how comfortable and bourgeois it was. And so she asked him, you know, how do you square this? He said, well, if you're going down with the ship, you might as well go down first class. So uh, I think that you know that's a quite a uh, it's quite a difficult uh, aspect to, to to deal with, I think, because he wasn't really conscious of this. But um, he he felt that I mean, he didn't he didn't live in, in a sort of massive luxury. He wasn't hugely wealthy. He didn't have a yacht in a Caribbean or anything like that. He, he it was comfortably off, I think. Does this also point to some extent of his kind of independence? Because he, he doesn't seem to be, as you already mentioned, a classical Marxist. And he, for example, you note in the book, he was friends with someone like Neil Ferguson, for example, mm. a man of the right. Yeah. Was he unusual in, in the sort of left-wing Marxist historian circles that he was quite happy to talk to people from other areas, draw ideas from them, engage with them? Yeah, he would talk to anybody. I'm not sure he drew many ideas from the right. I mean, he was, he, as a historian, he did recognise when Marxist theory didn't work. Uh, so in his book, The Age of Empire, for example, he recognises that the economic theories of imperialism is all driven by economic uh, factors, which you get from uh, Lenin or from Rosa Luxemburg, rather different arguments, that they didn't work. So when facts proved um, resistance to Marxist interpretation, he he um, let them triumph, as it were, in his writings. He would talk to anybody and get to know anybody. But there's also an aspect of him that I think enjoyed becoming part of the establishment, although not quite of it, but in it. So he loved belonging to the Athenaeum Club, that great establishment in Pall Mall, where there's said to be more bishops per square meter than anywhere else in the world outside the Vatican, for example. The very establishment uh, um, institution, just like the British Academy. He was very proud of being a fellow of the British Academy. He had honours and awards, and he was invested with the um, Companionship of Honour, which is an equivalent to a knighthood. Although when Tony Blair, on whom he'd had quite a lot of influence, I think, um, by his writings about the 
Labour Party um, recommended him for an honour. He gave him a choice of having a knighthood or a companionship of honour because he, he knew that his old comrades, as he told me, would never forgive him if he became Sir Eric Hobsbawm. He said, CH, CH is for the awkward squad. He said, if Jack Jones, the trade union leader, is a, is a CH, then I'd have no shame in, in doing that. But there's a sense in which relished, he relished being part of the establishment. And, um, and uh, of course... Um, that didn't turn him intellectually or politically to the right at all, but he liked that sense of acceptance. In the book, you highlight examples of where he was criticised during his life and afterwards, sometimes quite savagely for his communist beliefs. And I, I feel in the book you do mount quite a strong defence of him in many ways, but do you think he was still to some extent perhaps a little bit blind to some of the worst aspects of communism in practice. It's not my job to defend him uh, through the books. my job to tell the story of his life, to explain how he thought, why he did what he did and why he, how he became who he was and so on, and let the reader judge. But I, I, I think I, you know, it's my duty to give the reader a full set of um, materials and evidence and argument on which to base a judgment. And he came to communism... In its most radical phase in the early 1930s, in the so-called third period, when Stalin was really in control of the international communist movement and arguing that social democrats, moderate labor people, were really betraying the working class. They were worse than the fascists and the Nazis because they were weakening the working class. It's only the mid-30s that the popular front uh, came and Stalin changed his mind when he saw how, how counterproductive this third period was. So Eric was politicised at a time before a lot of British communists were, were politicised, and in Berlin, where it was a matter of life and death. So for him, it, communism, the communist ideal, if you like, small c communism, uh, was something that was part of his identity and, of course, strengthened by the fact that he was an orphan. He didn't have a family, uh, not a close family, and he, I think, experienced the communist movement as a kind of substitute family. There's a very interesting uh, monitored telephone conversation by, by MI5 involving Eric, where they, the communists basically start to threaten him uh, with expulsion. And he sort of breaks down and says, please, can't do that. Please don't do that. Um, even though he's leading a campaign in 1956 against the British Communist Party leadership to become more democratic, to reform themselves, to admit they've made mistakes, to admit that Stalinism was wrong, uh, all of these things. Um, and so I think there's kind of war in, within him between this communist, small-c communist commitment on the one hand and the, the recognition of the crimes of Stalin and, and Stalinism in particular. And I don't think the, the war was ever quite resolved and it's one of the fascinating things about Age of Extremes, his history of the short 20th century, that you can see this. Uh, he's trying to come to terms with the evils of, uh, of Stalinism. Uh, and it's quite a difficult thing, I think, for somebody who's been as, uh, as committed as he has been through his life. Now, you've already uh, elaborated on some of the strengths of some of the many strengths of Hobsbawm's mm. writing. But what would you say were potentially the weaknesses? I know in the book you talk about perhaps his perspective on women wasn't as strong or comprehensive as it could have been. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, that's putting it very, very gently. I think that was a weak spot. It's partly to do with his Marxism, because the, the fundamental belief of Marxism is that women's, the problem of women's equality and women's rights will be resolved by the revolution. And so trying to fight for them beforehand is a diversion. 
It's, it's uh, in a way, it's making bourgeois capitalism more acceptable. Um, and I think he never quite overcame that that belief. Uh, I think he was influenced by the, the world of jazz. So after he, in effect, broke with the Communist Party after 1956, when his campaign to democratise it completely failed, he then sought refuge in the world of jazz, uh, in the, the jazz community. And it was a very, very masculine, male chauvinist world in which the jazz players were all all men, apart from the occasional female singer, in which you know men were cats and Women were chicks, and uh, they were seen rather sort of as appendages of the of, of the male jazz players, and that's the one world in which he moved as well. And then, when you have the arrival of what's often called second wave feminism, to distinguish it from the suffragettes and the, that generation, in I guess the mid to late seventies, he found it very difficult to come to terms with. So that is a real weakness of his work. I think he stuck a chapter in on women in to the age of empire, whereas there weren't any in the age of uh, revolution or the age of capital, the pre preceding following. So you can see he was rather half-hearted. And of course, one of the problems of his writings about wage workers in the Industrial Revolution, particularly the furious debate he unleashed on the standard of living in the Industrial Revolution, which is still going on many decades later, is it didn't take account of women workers. And yet there were, you look at textile factories, there they were in their tens of thousands. But for him, as for the traditional Marxist labour movement, it was the male breadwinner who, who was really the... Um, well, it was the male who was the breadwinner, I should say, who was really the one who counted. So that's a weak spot. I think he had a bit of a weak spot in dealing with... Uh, America, with the United States of America. He didn't understand America. He, he often says in his private writings, his letters in particular, which I quote, that he found it incomprehensible. He just couldn't come to terms with American society. And, and that also shows in his work, I think. He was what we nowadays call Eurocentric. I mean, you can justify that in the sense that his three great 19th century volumes are about the spread of the industrial or spread of the influence of the industrial French revolutions across the world. And they certainly start respectively in Britain and France. Um, but when you get to the 20th century and age of extremes, I think there he divides it in his usual uh, way with wonderful clarity between three different periods. But to call you know, it runs from 1914 to 1989, and to call the central period of the 1950s a golden age is ignoring the massive amount of suffering, war, conflict, uh, hunger, famine, and, and, and so on, in Asia in particular. Uh, so I think it was quite a European perspective that he couldn't free himself from in, the, in that sense. And, and finally, I think one of, the, one of the most remarkable things about his writing is its openness to culture. He writes a lot about culture at a time when historians didn't really do that. Um, but it's very much the kind of culture he grew up with in Vienna uh, and to some extent Berlin, but above all in Vienna, it shaped his views. So he loved the great Viennese writers like Karl Kraus or the composers like like Mahler, and he wrote very movingly and, and very intelligently and well-informed way about um, uh, the Jewish influence on 19th century Viennese culture. But he had a bit of a, a bit of a deaf ear, particularly to uh, modern art um, and to pop music. He thought the Beatles wouldn't last, and he wrote about them in the 1960s. <laughs> he was completely repelled by the folk music 
movement, uh, which is a communist, actually supported the idea of folk music. It sprang from the people and so on. Um, but he wasn't interested in folk music at all and didn't really write about the hugely important part of music in popular life before the Industrial Revolution and the way it was transformed during the Industrial Revolution. So there's a number of gaps, uh, a number of weak spots that we all have these. Um, and what's really striking about his writing is the incredible erudition, the vast range of reference and huge knowledge that he had about so many aspects of modern life, one society and economy, culture, the arts, uh, politics and so on, and the way that he can link all these things together. And that is one of the strengths of the Marxist approach. You can link these different aspects of society, though then, of course, uh, if you start looking more carefully, some of the links appear to be not quite as, uh, you know, you, you can read them in other different ways. And I think in his early work, in Age of Revolution, for example, there are passages which um, you might call reductionist. In other words, he just sees politics as an expression of class interests and doesn't allow it enough autonomy. And, uh, but that changes over, over time as he gets older and more experienced and more knowledgeable as a historian. And overall, I think he is a, a wonderful historical writer with um, a huge amount to offer. Now, the historical profession does obviously move, move on and move, can move quite fast at times. But would you still say that Hobsbawm's books are required reading for history students, historians in the 21st century? Well, it's very remarkable that they're all still in print. So, I mean, the Age of Revolution, walk into any university bookshop, you can see it there on the history shelves. That was written in 1962. How many other historians whose books come from so long ago are still required reading on, uh, on university history courses? Uh, and uh, as I say, the reason I think is because they have these challenging hypotheses, which you can discuss in a seminar. Quotable quotes, they're beautifully written, they're very absorbing, he can carry the reader forward. Uh, and that's a very rare combination. So I think he still has a direct influence on, on history students who read his work, and I think should continue to read his work. Unlike a lot of biographers, you've actually knew Eric, and you met him several times. In terms of as a of your personal relationship, what kind of a man was he to meet or to encounter? Well, I, I only knew him in his later years, of course, through Birkbeck, where I, I taught from 1989 to 1998 and then subsequently. And he was, of course, a lifelong uh, lecturer, then reader and professor at Birkbeck and became an honorary fellow. And, and we actually gave him an office in the history department and some resources and became president of the college. So that's how I got to know him, really. And um, I always felt he, I always felt somewhat in awe of him because I knew he was knew so much more than I did about anything we could talk about. Um, but he was fascinating to talk to, and and of course he he knew so many people and had all kinds of views, uh, which was often quite surprising. You could never quite predict what he would think about about things. He was, I think, uh, an extraordinarily kind man. Uh, when I, I was appointed at Birkbeck, they gave me the job of um, rounding up the kind of PhD students and, and, and seeing what, what they were doing and so on. And they'd been rather neglected when I got there in 1989, I, I fear. Uh, in fact, when I did a mail shot, uh, I got two letters back, Mark, recipient, deceased. Uh, and Eric got very worried. He came in to see me and started explaining that, um, you know, this student and that student, they were laden of his, they'd never finish, but he they needed... Um, the psychological prop of thinking they were a PhD student and so on. So he really, he was very kind in that sense. And as far as I can see, entirely without malice, he never indulged in malicious gossip of the sort that's 
uh, unfortunately far too common uh, common in, uh, in in universities. He wasn't a good hater like too many historians are. He could be a savage reviewer, you know, when, when, he, when he thought a book was badly put together or, or implausible, but he was never personal about it. It's striking that anybody who knew him speaks very warmly of him in so, so many ways, I think. Uh, he was an, an, an admirable man. He became rather Olympian in, in his later years. I, I remember him at the British Academy meeting, we're considering somebody for election, and he simply said, well, I've been reading his work for 35 years and I've never learned anything from it at all. Well, that was the end of him, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, no, he was basically a very nice man. And this is a tough question, but would you say that Hobsbawm was, for you at least, was he the greatest historian of the 20th century? Um, well, I think there are many... It's very difficult. There are many different kinds of historians. I think he's very hard to beat um, for his combination of different kinds of history, analytical, narrative, um, even statistical. Um, He wasn't, however, a great archival researcher. He didn't really do things of that kind. You can point to other historians who who uh, have made major archival discoveries. His his forte lay in, I think, synthesising a huge mass of material and interpreting it and presenting it in a, in a readable way. So he was that kind of historian. Um, he wasn't a great narrative historian uh, in the sense that his books tended to be thematic in their, in their approach. So if you think of a book I've always admired greatly, Stephen Runciman's three-volume history of the Crusades, that is an un- kind of unbeatable uh, narrative. You can think of historians who've done enormous amounts of work on editing documents, for example, um, producing editions of, of documents, editions of, of, of works uh, by the most minute, painstaking kind of scholarship. And he wasn't that kind of historian either. I think it's um, once you get up to the kind of top ranks of historians, it's, it's very difficult to uh, say A is better than B because we do so many different kinds of things. I, I realise that Eric only, only died a few years ago, but things in the world have moved on quite a lot since then. I wonder what do you think he would make of some of the major political <laughs> developments of the last three or four years? I think he'd be shocked and appalled, mostly. He was, anyway, fairly pessimistic, uh, but um, he, he had a brief flaring of optimism when the crash in 2008 and thought capitalism was on the skids uh, and actually published a book of essays about capitalism, sort of explaining why Marx is relevant, become relevant again. But I think he would be appalled by the rise of populism across, uh, across the world, particularly by racism and xenophobia, uh, which you find now in so many parts of, of, of Europe and, and beyond Europe. He was a very cosmopolitan figure, a very tolerant figure. One of the things he most prized in the jazz community where he moved in the late 50s was its um, lack, entire lack of racism, for example, or discrimination. Um, so I think he would have been very depressed and I don't think he would have approved of Brexit though it's hard to guess because, as I say, he was often very unpredictable in his responses to current politics and that's one of the uh, ways in which he was ultimately far too independent a thinker to be a straight-down-the-line Marxist or communist. His anti-racism, sort of cosmopolitan views, how much of that do you think stems from his Jewish background? Which I know wasn't necessarily he wasn't religious, but that did mean quite a lot to him. He... Uh, was born into a, a, a Jewish secular 
thoroughly acculturated Viennese uh, family. Um, but at a time in the 1920s when there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in, in Vienna, it had been encouraged by the pre-war mayor of Vienna, Karl Lueger. And, of course, you have in the 30s the rise of Nazism. And not long before she died, his mother said, never do or be seen to do anything that will make you ashamed to be a Jew. And his Jewish identity was residual, I think, submerged, but it was always there. Um, he it comes out in various funny little ways through his through his career. Really, um, he tended to avoid writing about Auschwitz and the Holocaust. Although he lost relatives, people he knew very well uh, who were murdered by by the Nazis, but he didn't like to confront it. He surprisingly, perhaps, and he certainly surprised many people he knew uh, for his. Funeral, he left instructions that a Jewish friend of his, very distinguished historian, American historian Ari Katznelson, uh, should read the Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead, at his funeral, uh, which is quite a religious text. Uh, but he did feel these things. And I, he came out towards the end of his life also in these wonderful late essays on, on uh, Viennese Jewish culture in the 19th century. If someone's listening to this podcast and they're really infused and they want to go and read a book by Eric Hobsbawm, I'm sure there are many great books by Hobsbawm, but if there were just one you'd suggest they start with, what would you say? Uh, I'd say start with Bandits, really. It's a favourite book. It's absolutely favourite book of mine. It's a favourite book of his as well, along with Primitive Rebels, which is somewhat more academic treatment of these things. But it's so entertaining, it's so absorbing and so thought-provoking at all, uh, as well. And it's short. So if you like it, you can go on to the longer books, um, Age of Revolution, for example. Uh, and then essays, of course. He was a great essayist. He wrote so many essays and, and so many articles as well. But start with bandits. That was Richard J. Evans. Eric Hobsbawm, A Life in History, has just been published in the UK by Little Brown. In the US, it's due to be published in April by Oxford University Press. And you can read a version of this interview in the February edition of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on the Viking invasion of England, the Holocaust, an American visitor to Victorian Britain and Georgian killers who cheated the noose. You can get hold of our February edition in all good retailers in the UK and worldwide in our many digital formats. And that is about all for today. But do join us again on Thursday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.